Hello. Hello. Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, <laughs> the podcast where we talk about plants and cats and some science, a little bit of science sometimes. I'm Joram. I'm Tegan, and that was a great introduction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's uh, very kind. Um, yeah, how are you doing? How, how is it going for you? Uh, I'm in pain, but it's so boring to talk about. Um, <laughs> I mean, <then laughs> like, don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to complain very briefly. Like, uh, <laughs> one of the problems with my my having like my lacking a lung is that when they take the lung out, it made my spine curve. So, like, your body kind of adapts to the fact that there's like an organ that's moved, um, and the cavity fl fills up with fluid, and then my spine is now like out of joint. So my my spine has just become more and more like curved over the time, which is. Not that's not ideal. good, right? That's like, it's, it's not perfect. It's, um, it's, as it turns <laughs> out, straight spines are what helps you not have neck pain all the freaking time. Um, so it's usually fine because I swim a lot, which really helps. And then I like go and get it massaged out because I just end up getting like clenching all down my left side. But now I can neither swim nor um, like have somebody like need me like dough. So um, <laughs> always, and I'm I'm grumpy because I have to I have to work at my desk. And it's painful, <laughs> so I'm I've been like grumpy cat for the last ten ten days, I guess. Yeah. And I ended up taking Friday off, um, which was very nice. But then I ended up doing chores on Friday instead. <laughs> so I don't like adulting anymore. I'm done. I want to go back to like a kid when I had all my organs and no responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. I feel you a lot. Um, to me, it's the same now with all of the home office sitting pretty much in the same place the whole day i mean at least with with caring for a child i move around and i actually discovered something for me that's fun and healthy is that when i do like yoga poses even the most basic one my little boy finds it extremely interesting and fun and he starts like crawling under me or starts like coming <laughs> up and laughing cr crawling over me it doesn't really help with the yoga but it gives me an incentive to play with him like in in this way and move a little bit more um, because otherwise this, um it's just like sitting down down and reading books and that doesn't really help my spine there was goat yoga maybe this is like the new thing is, is baby <laughs> yoga instead of goat but so you've been doing i've also been doing yoga in the last five days i just started doing this like 30 day yoga thing because of the aforementioned pain <laughs> so there was a time when i was doing yoga pretty much every morning for 25 to 30 minutes i had like an app um, that had like a beginner's yoga program and it was really nice and easy going but now um, I just have too many other things with the little one that um, keep me from mm. like sticking to that um, that that's why I stopped there but now that I can sort of use that as playtime, um, maybe I'll pick that up again um, and he'll actually enjoy that and it will be good for me because I actually I, I do enjoy yoga I know it has for many people it has sort of like this this hippie wishy-washy reputation of not being a true thing and being full of like hippie ideology and so on but I found it to be an extremely relaxing and nice way to get your heart rate up a little bit and get more flexible. So mm, I can only I recommend. Like the, the straightening the spine and the thinking about the breathing is pretty helpful. I also, I don't like it when it becomes a bit too like spiritually because that's not really my thing. And it, if it gets a bit like yeah. weird, yeah, culturally linky thing where I'm like mm, is that okay that there's like a white person sort of doing I, I don't know that feels a bit weird to me sometimes when it's like is this I, I'm not sure if that's okay is that okay somebody else comment 
yeah, I, I is also it exploitation? Know, <laughs> I don't somebody... know enough about yoga to um, comment. I'm sounding very ignorant here, but um. Yeah, please somebody explain to us if that's cultural appropriation. If like some weird dude. Uh, it, from... thing, like, if it's if it is connection to spirituality, it depends. Like if that spirituality is belonging to like a group and who yeah. can have claims on spirituality. Like it's it's. I mean, I, I have this thing with like. <laughs> I feel more comfortable commenting on things about like the Christian religion because that's my background, even though I'm like atheist, um, like culturally my family has this Catholic thing. So like I would feel less weird about criticizing that than, but it's also like, I know that better. So I I don't feel like as ignorant, but yeah, to me it's that that I want to criticize something like believes in yoga things or other religions i'm just saying it's not for me it just doesn't it doesn't give me anything it doesn't give me any joy so i don't want to like do uh, a class where that's a, a major part of it um when it's just like a small minor thing like this whole shavasana thing i actually find that quite enjoyable to have this minute or two of relaxing at the end of that's the when exercise you like a starfish right yeah depend, <laughs> it depends yeah yeah starfish or just like everything's relaxed and yeah i like mm. that because um yeah that that sort of it also just for phys- physiological reasons it just like brought down my pulse and so when i would get up from the exercise i would not be like sweaty and all sort of pumped up i would like yeah. settle down a little bit again and ready to do the rest of my day where i'm like usually not immediately starting to run to my work or something like that um, yeah, so, so that's I'm, I'm just it. doing this like one with yoga with Adrian, which is like the 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 biggest one on YouTube. I think it's like free, mm. and there's like 30 day challenges, and there's also special ones for neck and back and stuff like that. And yeah, she's she's very like there's not too much spiritual stuff, and she's very flexible. She's like, you know, if this try it feels better, try this kind of thing, and you know, do what works for you a bit here, and and it feels yeah, it's. It's good. My body's getting old and it feels good to stretch. <laughs> I just feel like such an old person when I like stretch my leg. And firstly, I can't stretch my leg. And secondly, it makes like cricking sounds. And I'm just like, oh, geez. Yes. <laughs> Today, I found a white hair um, in like the front of my head. And I was like, oh, that's, poor you. that's new. Um, <laughs> I'm great like on just... both sides and in the back. Actually, uh, a, a friend and colleague of us, um, like former colleague and still friend, although despite the comment that, she, that I will recite now, um, she was walking behind me at one point and like, touched me in my neck and was like, oh, you're white there like a little bunny. <laughs> like a bunny, I remember. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, mine turned out to be uh, fur from my cat because I was lying on the ground <laughs> doing yoga. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm good as far as the white hair. Although I'd be happy to have white hair because I'm imagining like dying at like a bright Easter egg when I get older. Like this um, yeah. kind of, yeah, I think the whites take the manic panic dye a little bit better than, than whatever <laughs> random color I've got now. Yeah, but speaking of like bodily um, dysfunctionality, oh dear God. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm sure all our listeners are at the edge of their seat, dying to know what my blood test uh, results were um, that I teased last week. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> and it's just it's just very sad for me because um, according to this, I I have antibody reaction. So this is a test that tests IgG four antibodies, which is not like a proper allergy, and it's not the thing. Um, when you can't eat lactose or something like this, where an enzyme is broken in your in your body, it's just when stuff breaks the the barrier of your intestines and gets into the blood, and then the the body makes antibodies against things that you, from your food that make it into the blood. And according to this, it's eggs and wheat 
and uh, rye and spelt and almonds and bananas um, that I'm all reacting to. And especially the Just wheat the is very problematic. <laughs> because, yeah, it's it's a lot of the things that I eat and I enjoy baking bread and eating bread and eating pasta and eating like, yeah, grain derived things. And according to this, I should just eat rice in the future. But uh, sorry, could it just mean that you've just been shoveling like baguette into your face for the last like two months and therefore you have like some of it leaked through? Like maybe if you stopped eating bread for a week and then did the test again. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that's reversible. Like uh, if oh, I okay. would stop mm -hmm. eating for three months now um, these these things, um, chances are very high that my antibody level would go down. And also any like the idea is that this is related to any sort of signs of discomfort I, w I might have from my nutrition and these might also go away so if i don't eat wheat for three months and then i slowly start eating wheat again i might not show another reaction in the future i mean i'm i'm willing to bet that we've got three months left of quarantine so i reckon we do the test so as of tomorrow <laughs> no more bread <laughs> no more wheat yeah but um, it's also it's even like the alternatives right like i i just started to get into rye breads And you now rice also now. on the list. So, and even spelt is on the list, uh, the, the wheat alternative flour. So now I can just, I just can't have bread or pasta. You know, calcium carbon, it's pretty um, <laughs> good for you. It's a good uh, bread, bread substitute. Oh, um, uh, yeah. I think I should just eat sunflower oil from now on. And ew. This is a segue to the paper that we're going to talk, to talk about today. This is a segue for me having bad ideas about your digestion. <laughs> yeah, All right. Let's, let's talk some Sunflower. <laughs> It's the paper of the week. And this week's paper of the week is called Massive Haplotypes Underlie Ectopic, nee, Ecotype, Ecotypic, not Ectopic. Is Ectopic, isn't that like ghosts and stuff? Um, massive Haplotypes Underlie Ecotypic Differentiation in Sunflowers. Isn't ectopic when it's in the wrong place? Like ectopic pregnancy is when your baby ah, like yeah. lodges itself in the fallopian tube instead of um, or the developing fetus. I, uh, yeah, I don't know why. I, thought, I somehow had like... Uh, Ghostbusters in my mind when I thought uh, about ectoplasm. E ectoplasm, yeah, that's why. Ah, because it's oh, yeah. plasm in the wrong place, probably. Marco Tedesco, Gregory L. Owens, and Natalie Brokovich um, are the three authors who contributed equally to this work, as far as I can tell. Um, and <laughs> they come from various locations, but I wanted to give a shout out to the University of Georgia. Um, so Plant Center UGA at Plant Center UGA on Twitter, because they're the ones who shared the ReadCube link, which means I could get past the paywall. So um, thank you to them. One of the authors was from the University of Georgia and the authors get this kind of um, shareable link, uh, which can be shared. And in this case, it was shared. And that's just a little hint for you guys. If you ever can't find a paper, sometimes you can just search for the title of the paper on Twitter and somebody will have shared the the shared it link which, mm -hmm. yay. is it like journals give out these specific links right um to to the authors so they can distribute yes. them at will well it's, it's for the authors to to share on their homepage or to share on their twitter and stuff like this um yeah but often the authors don't <laughs> yeah um so urge your your authors when you ask them for the paper because that's another way right you can just write them an email and ask for the paper and they are legally I've allowed and often will just send you the pdf but um 
you can at this point remind them that they might have such a link that it's that they might put on their website. I've honestly not had success with that before. I've tried a few times when for plants and pets we've found stuff that we couldn't get at. Um, and I've emailed the authors or like reached out to them on Twitter because they've they've put on Twitter, hey, we published this great study and they've they've been enthusiastic about their work enough to actually put it on Twitter, but then they've put the paywall link on Twitter. Um, because they, of course, have institutional access. And I've been like, hey, would you mind sharing with me the link? I would love to cover this on our blog. And okay, I understand that we're not like an important blog or podcast, but I just have had crickets and that's <laughs> happened a few times. And also like contacting people requesting via um, a research gate or something like that. And it's just been like, yeah, yeah, nothing. I yeah. I then always get pouty and just like, then I'm not going to talk about your story. <laughs> your loss. I didn't even like your amazing <laughs> science anyway. <laughs> We'll do something on, I don't know, worms <laughs> instead. More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to, back to the story. Um, the authors actually shared the right link uh, so we can talk about this. And you, uh, our listeners, you can actually also read the story. Um, and so, yeah, why did you choose it, Tegan? Um, yeah, so honestly, we sort of chose the paper a little bit last minute. I was like, oh, I want a short one. Let's go to nature. Because, um, you know, like nature, science, PNAS have very short formats. And then um, I saw this one, but actually I had seen it previously on one of the nature communities, which is um, like there's these sort of web hubs where the authors can write behind the papers, which is a blog post about what their their recent publication is about but usually also they talk about stuff that's not in the paper so the cool story so there's been some like really interesting ones on of of these behind the papers on these communities in the past so like one story was about um women who were both scientists and they met like in the playground while their kids were playing and then they were discussing their science together while the kids were playing and then they came up with a, a cross-disciplinary idea based on this like random meeting so there can be some really nice um stories on there as well and i had actually already seen this it's adaptive alleles stick together as the blog post we'll link it as well um and i had a look and it sounded like a really cool story so that was basically the the idea yeah i also um read this and i i found it to me opened a completely different view on the study because the the way scientific research is written um it's so sort of dry and neutral and um sort of it wants to be perceived as, as objective um but uh i mean that's that's the way they have to be written right you take sort of all, all out of the person all of the personality of the people doing the research you take that out of the results mm -hmm. so you just have the pure results because that's what science is about um but then often it doesn't really matter like who the author names are on the list because you you just look at the facts and i like these these blog posts a lot um because they give you an idea that these are people these are humans doing this research and they have like interesting experiences around the research and they give you another angle at the research why it's actually really exciting what they mm. did um so, so this yeah. um this work community post, this blog post is written by um, Natalia Berkovic and um, Marco Tedesco, so two of the first authors. And it's got like some backstory. It's got like a road trip around the US and also Canada. And it's got a ton of really great photos of sunflowers. So if you like sunflowers, that's an argument enough. Like, yes. go and check it out, I would say. We'll read a few quotes out as we go. Um, 
And also, as an aside, if any of you are doing plant molecular biology and want your stuff talked about by us and have cool backstories, hey, hit us up. Yes. Contact us. And we will also do similar things. I mean, we always like hearing about the, the human side of the science, I guess. Yeah. So um, let's let's begin. Let's talk about the paper. Um, so this thing is about ecotypes, as we learned from the title in my bad pronunciation. <laughs> um, and ecotypes are this thing of plants where um, you have the individual plant species, but that's not where the differentiation stops. Um, within a species, you can usually cross the plants, but you still get locally adapted ecotypes. And we actually wrote about this on the blog, right, about um, Arabidopsis ecotypes, mm -hmm. how many different ecotypes there are and how they are often uh, phenotypically from, from their physiology very different to one another. Um, they all belong to the same species, but some of them have adapted to grow at higher altitudes and less rainfall, others adapted to very high temperatures and so on. Um, and this this is something you find in many different plants and also in sunflowers, which is the model organism or the yeah, this, this species that they looked at in this paper. Yeah, so, so one of the things, as Joran pointed out, that ecotypes aren't different species. They, they, they are part of the same species, which means theoretically they can interbreed. But the part of the kind of point of being an ecotype is that you often have adaptations that are specific for the environment that you live in. So as your arm said, you might be a plant that has to live in a cold place as a plant that lives, like maybe you're a plant that lives a little bit up a mountain compared to a plant that lives only a few meters away, but down the bottom of the mountain. So you're living in a lot colder place. Um, so theoretically, that cold mountain plant and the lower plant are the same species. They probably can breed and they probably can mix up their DNA. But that might result in offspring that then lose the genetic adaptations that let them be like fitter in their special environment. And this is particularly problematic because usually when it comes to something like, let's say, cold adaptation, this is not a single gene that can be passed on. This is usually a combination of many different genes. So if you imagine like the whole like book of DNA where you've got multiple chromosomes and you've got like maybe tens of genes across all of these different chromosomes, which are coming together to make a plant cold tolerant. If you then breed that cold tolerant plant with another just kind of like normal plant at the bottom of the mountain, you might be mixing and matching those genes and it ends up that nobody's cold tolerant yeah. um, because the genes kind of, half of them come to the, the children and the other half don't. So you end up losing these um, beautiful adaptive abilities. So um, in this study, they, they looked at sunflower and um, they chose uh, three different sunflower species um, that they wanted to look at. The, um, the first two are um, Helianthus uh, annuus and Helianthus petiolaris, um, which are found mostly in, uh, like in a very overlapping distribution in North America. So you, yeah, you find them in, in many different places. And then there's also Helianthus agrophilis, um, which is called the silver leaf sunflower, which is a cool name, I find. And also <laughs> on the pictures you find in a blog post, it also looks pretty cool. And this plant is mostly endemic to southern, Tex uh, southern Texas. So then within these three different species of, of Helianthus, we also have lots and lots and lots of different ecotypes. So, for example, um, like Helianthus annus... Um, <coughs> 
yeah, it's it's often growing in these kind of middle soils, but it can also be found in like very extreme habitats. Or there's one well-known type in Texas that is very specific for the heat of Texas and is also adapted to herbivores. Um, the Pediolaris has some that like sheets, uh, like sand sheets and dunes, and then there's a variation within the different ecotypes within that species. And um, the the Argophilus has, for example, two ecotypes. One has more than two, but two of them. One of them is early flowering and lives on the coast, and the other one is a late flowering that's inland. And this is again, this is the same species, but there's these these ecotypes or races of the plants which have these quite different behaviors. So the researchers then took these different ecotypes from these three different species. And when I said they took it, um, it actually means that they had to collect them in the wild from all the different places that they grew in because there is no such collection where you would just go into like a catalog and order all these ecotypes. You actually had to go out and collect them. And in the blog post, there is a very nice map of the road trip that they made um, all across the, I think, western half of the United States up to, I think it's, is that into... Canada. Into Canada as well, yeah. yeah it's a pretty big chunk of the US. A big chunk of the US into Canada and uh, in the south also into Mexico. Um, and along these, these roads, there was one researcher, um, uh, Dylan uh, is his name, who traveled there and collected wherever he could find sunflowers um, that fit this, this species. He collected samples there and brought them all together to the research lab. And one of these little tidbits you find in his blog post is, for example, that the samples he collected in Mexico um, unfortunately didn't make it to the United States because due to a regrettable misunderstanding, and I quote here, with the United States customs, um, <laughs> they were incinerated. So he made all of this trip also down to Mexico and collected a couple of samples there as well, which undoubtedly would have been very interested to include, interesting to include in the study, um, but they were incinerated uh, at the United States Customs Control. They, they brought all of these different um, samples back and in the end they had 151 populations. And then they did this massive growth experiment where they were growing 10 plants of each of the 151 ecotypes or populations, which is just a huge, and they're growing them in the field. So there's this huge um, experiment. And also, again, from the blog, they noticed that wild sunflowers are just, can get, can get really, really big. So they can grow up to four meters tall and more than two meters wild. So they had 1,500 basically sunflowers in a huge um, field experiment. And it became basically a sunflower jungle. And again, there are some photos of that on the blog that I would really encourage you to go and look at. And they also, um, sunflowers are obligate outcrosses, which means that they don't like to self-pollinate. So they then had to cross all of these basically by hand. So like bagging the sunflower and getting another sunflower and like helping pollinate it. And um, so there's basically scientists like making their way through this sunflower jungle and, and doing this pollination work, which just sounds, I mean, it sounds like very hot, exhausting work, but also very magical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I imagine doing that in Arabidopsis, like the whole experiment <laughs> would pretty much fit into a shoebox and they have to do like, I'm, I'm a little bit exaggerating here. You'd but need like a, a big growth cabin. Yeah. But 
like one growth cabin and you could walk amongst them with no problem usually i think there's no like two meter tall or four meter tall arabidopsis uh, but yeah in sunflower it's a different story it's like these massive plants and along with the the actual plant samples uh, um they the the seeds they also collected soil samples on this road trip um uh and measured a, a couple of like uh, developmental and morphological traits and then they sequenced uh, over 1400 of these individual plants so they created this massive data set um pretty much looking at uh anything and everything um of these plants they, there's also some pictures um where they measured like leaf shapes and they they took photos of the flowers under uv light and under vis- visible light and they make cuts of the stem and cataloged all of this as well so um just like this massive database of the state of all of these ecotypes of these plants um, that's something we should talk about at one stage in the blog the fact that like plants with these different uv patterns it's kind of amazing right yeah um, yeah they look completely yeah. different from what you expect uh yeah because in the case of sunflower you have like the the yellow petals and the dark center and then under uv light you suddenly have this like bigger circle around the dark center that's also dark so you have like a uh, parts of the petals yeah um to for, for, for insects if I remember rightly in the blog post, the authors hinted that that information was coming in, in a later paper because it wasn't in this paper. They kind of yeah. teasered that there was something else good good about to happen. Yeah. Um, anyway, on top of this, so they did, um, what, 1,400 uh, plants. They sequenced them. On top of this, the genome of sunflower is not super small. So Arabidopsis, our, our favorite model plant, it's only 135 megabases, which is 1,000 bases. And this is 3.5 gigabases. So it's like 20 times bigger than Arabidopsis. Um, so, yeah, you've got 14,000 times 20. So you've got, wait, 1,400 times 20. So you've got like 30,000 Arabidopsis worth of sequence data, roughly. Um, yeah. But they did mention that there's a lot of repeated um repetitive sequences in these genomes of sunflower, which is actually very, very common in most organisms, particularly common in um, higher plants. There's just like huge duplications of the entire genome. So they use something called enzymatic depletion, which I actually didn't look into, but apparently that helps reduce um, the the repetitive sequences to make it easy to do the, the sequencing itself. Yeah, and then they aligned a whole big chunk of uh, sequences to a reference genome, which is a very straightforward standard method where you have one genome that's assembled where you know where everything is and then you have now all your sequence data and you can sort of align it to it and uh, assemble it this way. Um, But they ran into a problem when they did that um, that most commonly used uh, sequence data pipelines, um, they are made for usually for other species than sunflowers and even often for plants. In this case, they say that a lot of this was originally designed for uh, human sequence data. And so all of these software, uh, all of this software just faulted, just uh, broke down under this massive load of these giant genomes <laughs> with this repetitive, these repetitive sequences. And so on top of all of the experimental work that they had to do, they also had to do a big chunk of bioinformatic work to actually get the data together and get it into a usable um, format and something they could understand and work with. But again, that's that's pretty much an argument for always using model species. I mean, this is one of the reasons why 
it's it's easy to use models to see this because often not only the wet tap techniques that we use in the lab but also the the software um is designed for the models so this is how it's kind of and and every time you go away from model things just become quite quite tricky quite fast um and it was definitely already a benefit that there was a a reference genome so this in itself is is also quite a big step to get a genome it's it's not so hard to get the sequences themselves um, but getting the sequence is basically getting puzzle pieces where you've got like a, a 20,000 piece puzzle and knowing how to put those puzzle pieces together to make like a physical map is is quite challenging still. Um, so it's it's good in this case that there was a reference genome that already existed, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then they looked at all of this big data set and they uh, mostly used uh, SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is single letter changes at predictive or predicted places or in known places um, across different um, individuals. They used that as a marker to uh, analyze how related in the individual uh, sunflower ecotypes were to each other and they built a big phylogenetic tree which just means they sort of built um like the uh, a list of all their ancestors and put them all in a in a map of relationship to to one another and how long ago they sort of separated from each other uh, on during their evolution yeah and i think this is where we now be get to the very interesting stuff because as yora mentioned as well as collecting those seeds, they also collected data about the, the soils that the sunflowers grew in. And they also took like some traits and um, some general knowledge about the environment preferred by the sunflowers. And now what they're doing is matching all of these changes in the genes from individual ecotype to ecotype with the changes they see in the different environment. So let's say you have what was it 150 ecotypes and 20 of them happen to really like living in the desert then you look through the genomes and you say what have those 20 all kind of got in common with each other that they might not have the other the other ones who don't live in the desert don't have that and it's not completely conclusive but if you've got 20 who have a thing and live in the desert and then all the rest of them don't and don't live in the desert you've got this kind of guilt by association where you can say hey maybe having that thing that genetic change is what helps you grow in the desert and you do this in a, in a much more complicated way obviously um and you can look at a ton of different traits and, and sort of start mapping genetic changes um, with the phenotype of the plant, so how it looks, or its environment, which is, is pretty cool, I would say. And one of these things that they found um, that really stood out and I took as an example here uh, was these two ecotypes uh, of the silverleaf sunflower that we mentioned before um, that have these different flowering times. Um, and there they found that um, there's a single highly significant... Um, area that spans about 30 megabase pairs so a large a very large chunk on one of the chromosomes um that uh is is different between these two um ecotypes and that probably drives like uh largely the difference in flowering time between these two um ecotypes and the interesting thing about this that is a sort of one or this, this is a region made of these blocks of these chunks um of of sequence data of, of of DNA information essentially, and it's enough that uh, um, this uh, that 
one of these chunks is present to shift the flowering time in plants. So it's not that there is a single gene that's responsible for that, but there's like a whole big chunk containing several different genes um, and regulatory sequences and all of that that is enough to actually um, explain the big difference in flowering time between these two ecotypes. And this is something that wasn't known before, that there are these sort of uh, modules uh, on... Um, yeah, modules on on the DNA that can have this uh, these effects, and they, that's what they call, uh, as far as I understood it, th this is what they call the haplo haplo mm -hmm. blocks. Um, yeah, so a huge block of of DNA, not just one or two genes genes scattered around, but like a big chunk, a big stretch that um, is defining certain traits and. This, as Yara mentioned, was found already for this kind of flowering type phenotype, which was found to be different between a coastal and an inland population of the um, silverleaf sunflower, I think it was. Um, but they also found multiple other ones. So there was in um, a different hunt, uh, sunflower species, they saw three sort of blocks that were differentiated strongly depending on whether the ecotype liked to live in the dune or not in the dune. And when they looked within this massive block, so like huge stretches with tons of genes in them and looked at what sort of genes there were within the block, they saw that there were things that related to both flower size and also seed size. Um, and this is, is pretty important because if you think about it, if you live in the dunes, it's really sandy, it's really dry, there's not many nutrients. So it might make sense to have larger seeds where your young get given more resources from the parents, which help you survive and establish in these really like dangerous kind of shifting and, and nutrient poor ecosystems. So again, they found this huge block which helped give dune plants bigger size and basically the plants the the ecotypes which grew on the dune had the the seed size haploblock or big seed size haploblock as i'm i'm kind of calling it in a in a way and the interesting thing about this is that um this is not really expected behavior usually uh so that the existence of these blocks because usually in a simplistic uh, approach you would think that when uh, genomes recombine during um, sexual reproduction that it's a sort of randomly there's chunks of the dna that are broken up and mixed together so um, just by pure chance eventually a block would bro be broken up and uh, some of the genes would be passed on and others wouldn't be passed on um, and this is but as we mentioned in the introduction, that would be problematic. So if you have this block that's helping you survive in the dunes and suddenly half of the genes that you need for dune survival just disappear because they've recombined, they've mixed up during um, sexual reproduction, then nobody can live in the dunes anymore. So it makes sense that there's something which kind of keeps all these genes together so that they're always inherited as an entire package, just not just like yeah. half a package. And they found some structural variants, so some, um, yeah, some some ways the DNA was was organized, uh, and, and mostly inversions, um, which helped to stabilize these blocks, so that there could no, uh, so the chance that recombination happens in these regions is drastically reduced, so that they essentially always stay together in in these blocks. Mm. And this, as we gave we gave you already like two examples that were were sort of highlighted in the paper, but. They found that these haploblocks were actually pretty similar, pretty common. Um, 
across the three species and these, what, 150 ecotypes, they found at least 37 of these regions, which can be a bit smaller, one megabase um, pair along or to 100 megabase pairs in size. Um, they can be up to 15% of the entire genome. And as Yoram said, they kind of have these features that they don't seem to recombine very much and there's might be some structural things that prevent them from recombining. So um, it seems like it's kind of a thing and it, it makes sense that it's a thing in, in many ways. The question that I asked myself then and would also something they answer in the blog post is where do these haploblocks come from? Um, often they could link them from from crossings they could find sort of both parents that had um, the respective haploblocks and how they can then came together in the um, daughter species but uh, often enough they couldn't find um, a progenitor that had these that where this came from it sort of appeared suddenly in a certain um, ecotype and the interesting thing about this is and here this where there is something where they can only speculate is uh, the idea that these progenitors they died died out they don't exist anymore um, they sort of gave their haploblock that gives them a specific trait i don't know bigger seed size better um, tolerance to to um, drought um, passed that on crossed that into another sunflower ecotype and then suddenly this sunflower ecotype got so much better um, at surviving in this this area that it outgrew the original donor of this haploblock and that's how they suddenly emerge and so these haploblocks are also traces of evolution and traces of um, some ecotypes that don't exist anymore um, because they gave they passed on their genetic information into a different ecotype that then outcompeted them and so they the original donors don't exist anymore on a similar theme the presence of these haploblocks also might be indicative of things to come in that they noticed that quite a few of not some of the haploblocks at least sorry were related to things that defined like flower development or seed development um, which have to do with reproductive success and this might mean that over time especially if it's to do with reproduction itself so so flower development there might actually be further separation of these ecotypes away from each other, which ultimately, once they can't breed, would mean you've got speciation. So these haplotops might kind of be a starting point, which which ends up in, in new species springing from what was once just a different ecotype. And the question now is, can we use that? Can we use that knowledge? Because now that we know that a haploblock contains all the information to make a plant to, uh, very good at surviving in sandy environments or to flower later or earlier. Um, that might be very interesting in breeding. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's not that easy because these things are so extremely huge, so you can't easily, with modern methods, um, transfer them from one plant into another. You can't easily do biotechnology, cut out the haploblock and drop that in because you run into limitations of how much DNA you can amplify and move at a time mm -hmm. without breaking it. Um, so the authors, um, especially in the blog post, actually say that um, this might rather help to during breeding programs to avoid these haploblocks to avoid messing with them and um, to be careful when uh, using wild plants to cross them into existing production plants um, because yeah the, that you don't want to break up these haploblocks or you don't want to um, yeah you want to be aware of their existence uh, mm -hmm. during breeding i think two more cool things before we finish um 
I the authors mentioned that there's probably way more haploblocks that they haven't found. So so far we said there was 37 haploblocks that were identified in these about 150 ecotypes. But probably there's more. That's just because the way they looked for haploblocks, they were basically looking for big things that were over one megabase um, long. So there's probably more in there that are still waiting to be found. Um, and the second really cool thing I thought was that there is some evidence that there might be haploblock-like things in other organisms, including cod and salmon. So that seems seems pretty cool. And especially, um, I think fish like cod and salmon have these weird life cycles where some of them quite sort of hang around in one spot, but others of them migrate long distances. And I wonder if those haploblocks in those species are involved in that kind of adaptation when it comes to like life cycle um, mm. different types. But yeah, anyway, um, that was the paper for day. Yeah. Do you want to read the title again? <laughs> the t- title is Massive Haplotypes Underlie Ecotypic Differentiation in Sunflowers. It's by the f- joint first authors Marco Todesco, Gregory Owens, and Natalia Berkovich. And we didn't say at the start that came out in Nature um, in April this year. <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, linked to the paper uh, and to the very informative uh, behind the paper blog post, uh, you can find that in the show notes. This is where the fun begins. You this is where the fun begins. You this is where the fun begins. <laughs> um, I think the first thing we have to talk about today is how angry is Worm Twitter. Uh, Wormgate 2020. <laughs> yeah. Like 2020 was this... a terrible year, but it just got a little bit worse. <laughs> I was just thinking, I hope this this comes on the Is 2020 Over website where they discuss all like the horrific things that have happened this year, which includes, you know, um, World War Three nearly starting coronavirus, um, the issues in Hong Kong, um, uh, Revers turning red with, with algae that looks like blood. Uh, what else have we got happening? Eurovision was cancelled, which is apparently very traumatizing for some people. Um, um, and now Wormgate. Yeah, I, I'm just checking the website is 2020over.com and Wormgate is not on it yet, um, but I think Super it will be soon. Um, so Wormgate, what is Wormgate? Uh, in <laughs> case you um, missed it, I, first of all, I'm jealous of you. Um, I, no, I s- it's so great. It made me actually laugh out loud yesterday. <laughs> and I'm a joyless human being. It's one of these things for me where I, I stumbled across sort of all the takes on it on Twitter where people respond to it and and talk about it as if everybody knows. And then I tried to look it up and then I fell into a little bit of a rabbit hole yesterday um, looking into more and more of it. And so here's the story. Um, there is a, a, a Twitter thread started um by uh just the zoo of us which is a podcast about animals um and they ask what is the most overhyped animal clearly um in a sort of a playful way it's 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 a joke right what is the most overhyped animal and there were lots and lots of great answers to it like for example lions how lions are overrated or overhyped because they lie around most of the day and they move very little and everybody calls them king of the jungle even though they don't even live in the jungle um so things like that um so (laughs) good spirited humor fun um until one faithful moment um the editor of elife uh the editor of of uh, eLife, Michael Eisen, or would you pronounce it differently in English? In German, it would be Eisen. I mean, it's not like a German name in fairness. Um, he said, <laughs> um, 
that and I, I think it's important here to to quote what he what he said <laughs> uh, even though i have to put um a little duck sound in it um see elegance they wiggle forward they wiggle backwards and occasionally they f- <laughs> themselves that's it and this is what he tweeted about it we just let's talk about what see elegance is yes. quickly yeah, so C. elegans is a nematode. It's a microscopic worm. It's one millimeter in size. It's a round worm. And it's a model organism that many researchers use to study, um, I think, mostly neuron development because it's one of yeah, the simplest... Yeah, it's the simplest organism with... with um like a nervous system, right? Yeah. Or with and, a neural network or something. And it just has like something in the range of like 300 and something neurons. Um, so very... Like a very simple system, and simple systems are always great when you want to understand the basics of of a system. Um, so yeah, there's many people researching it, and Michael Eisen um, seems to yeah he doesn't like the worm because he thinks it's ridiculous. He actually see, says then he follows it up with I mean a fly larvae does everything a C. elegans does um, better if I may say so, and then it turns into a fly. <laughs> and um, this hot take. This uh, evil, evil, mean-spirited, hot take um, angered Worm Twitter. And this led to a lot of tweets of Worm Twitter, of people getting really angry at him. And just like, so for some context now, I'm on um, Michael Eisen's wiki page right now. And a quote from him on his wiki page is, even more than I love a... even more than I have a frog fetish, I have a swamp fetish. I really like being in swamps. So like... I don't. I don't know if you're gonna really put a lot of value on on this guy who loves being in swamp and has a swamp fetish. On whether he like, <laughs> calm the hell down, people. Just like turn it down. <laughs> but people were mad, um, and then other people were joking about how ridiculous it was that people got mad, which I found really, really funny. Um, yeah. I do. You want to mention some of your favorite tweets, and I'll mention some of like I've got two favorites. Um. Yeah, uh, one um, one account is called uh, Fancy Comma LLC. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's uh, one of my my first said uh, completely ignoring the fact that this statement is ex- exceptionally crass because he used the uh, dropped an f bomb there, and I would never take anyone seriously who spoke that way. C. Elegance is amazing. I saw Robert Ho- Horvitz, who got the Nobel Prize for studying C. Elegance, speak in two thousand two, and then Michael Eisen just replies, "You're just upset that I didn't use any commas," and then the fancy comma LLC replies, "Also very true. More commas!" Exclamation point. They kind of look like C. Elegance, and then a couple of commas, and then Michael Eisen is like, "Except that commas are useful." And this is I, I screenshotted that one. That was. <laughs> I also found that extremely. Um, yeah. I love commas, and I love that kind of smack talking of C. <laughs> And then somebody also wrote, um, somebody said, what the f*** is C. elegans? Um, and the response was, it's only C. elegans if it's from the Canorhabitic region. So it's the, the genus name, I can't say it properly, of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling nematode, which made me really happy. Uh, um, yeah uh, and all of that like a lot of that is in, 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 in good fun like people like to uh, trash talk each other's favorite model organisms we did that all the time in the lab between like Arabidopsis and tobacco and algae and, and also between mitochondria like one of the reasons Yarm and I always trash talk mitochondria on the podcast is one of our closest friends 
works on mitochondria. And there was a small war because he was the only one working on mitochondria in an otherwise chloroplast lab. So, like, that was, it's just what we do. We're scientists. We don't have a lot of joy in our life. (laughs) Let us trash talk the other person's modern model organism or model species or system, whatever. We are often too nerdy to have sports teams (laughs) that we root for. Um, Oh, my goodness, it's true. (laughs) So, instead, we we trash talk each other's favorite model organism. And the important thing here is, without actually saying thinking that these are honestly terrible orga- organisms and nobody should study them it's just that we prefer our own model organism that's why we're studying it if we would like another model organism better we would study the other model organism and then look down on other <laughs> again the, the the other organisms so um, all of um that i just saw the other one you screenshot <laughs> somebody <laughs> said michael hendrick said sometimes when i'm telling somebody i study worms i'll say they're surprisingly charismatic but it's not true <laughs> They're exactly as charismatic as you'd expect. <laughs> and then somebody's retweeted with traitors amongst us. Yes. And um, that's somebody who retweeted it is a C. Elegans researcher who comes up in some of the other mm. um, other threads. Yeah, okay, so, so, so two, two serious points now, I think. Um, like where it got kind of bad, yeah, problematic. So until then, it's, it's all Very fun. Very funny. Uh, until uh, then, and then... Yeah. So the first thing is... This person is an editor at a fairly important, like it's eLife, so it's it's a fairly big um, magazine. It's quite new, but it's it's doing okay. Um, and people started saying, "I'm now reconsidering sending my manuscript to eLife because you're biased and you're a problem." And I mean, apart from the fact that he was clearly making a joke, also, just because he has an opinion about not liking a worm doesn't mean that he doesn't think that the science done with that worm is very important. So, like, (laughs) as somebody who's an editor now, I found this highly disturbing that people would really be, like, tweeting at him that, you know, how dare you say this? This shows that you can't do your job properly, basically. Like, that's how, like, I don't know. This, this, I'm not sure that those people were joking anymore. I think it got a little bit, like, weirdly serious. And he had to justify that, he's a person who has opinions and that's okay because those opinions are not interfering with his job. And which brings us kind of to the second point, because I would say even if it wasn't a joke, the the opinions he had were not the same as certain other opinions. And Yoram, you can maybe talk about this. Yeah. Um, because from then on, um, it, it took a really turn for the worse. Um, there were some people commenting that, uh, um, that, the saying it's just a joke and here i quote is women and people of color have heard that one before is something that uh, some person said another person said that jokes are often microaggressions and um from then on uh this other person they uh continue to draw like <laughs> jump rather big leaps from microaggressions um to in the end um uh, discrimination against minorities, people of color, uh, to sexism and racism, and comparing all of the, these uh, uh, systemic issues with a joke about a model organism and saying this is just as bad, um, these are the same things. Um, and let's be true, let's be clear it's just a joke is a problem. There are microaggressions used against women and people of color and any minority, and yes, it's just a joke, is used to justify some disgusting behavior that should not be accepted. But likening real issues that are happening in the world and real discrimination and bias to 
somebody not liking a freaking worm that does not have feelings, that is not a human. Like, this is disgusting. Like, you are trying to say, like, I don't know, like, you're trying to bring a worm's issue to the same level of importance as, like, biases against minority. This is, like, seriously rethink what you're doing here because you're not making the worm more important. You're undermining those people and their cause. Like, it is a worm. It's not even a real worm. Real, real worms, I think we all know, are annelids. They have segments. If you're not an earthworm, you're not a freaking worm. <laughs> Bloody helmets, get out of here. <laughs> but, like, no, seriously, this is, like, to, to be... I understand, yeah, it's just a joke is not an okay excuse, but... That's when it comes to people using actual microaggressions and being actual bigots, not when it comes to people saying they don't like worms. Yeah, the the thing that like I try to look at this like when I, I saw these things come up, I first try to be sympathetic and try to see the angle um, where this is actually a, a bad microaggression at, at the likes of sexism and racism, and I just couldn't see any of these angles <laughs> because first like, and foremost messaged me and was like do i have to lose my bleeding liberal badge because i can't i can't like feel for the worm and i'm like no these people are stupid <laughs> sorry um, just, yeah because yeah. then first of all like it's a worm and it's also the the research of this worm is not being discriminated against there have been people being awarded the Nobel Prize for studying this worm for effects that were, uh, as some other t- uh, another tweet pointed out, a lot of the effects um, dis- like studied in this worm were previously discovered in plants. And the plants were not the ones who got the Nobel Prize. It was the people studying the worm. So you can't construct, in, from no angle, you can, can construct uh, some sort of discrimination against the worm or against the people studying this worm. Um, and from then on, yeah, then it as everything on Twitter, it spiraled itself into a worse and worse places uh, where people doubled down on their stance of saying this is the same as racism um, and other people, uh, yeah, attacking them for it. Uh, and so this whole thing led to suddenly the worm gate with at one point even C. elegance being trending so that people outside of the science bubble were confused what's going on here <laughs> what is C. elegance why is everybody just, so mad yeah I just want to make a comment that there was a response to this kind of women and people of color have had this before and somebody actually said I'm going to quote here so it's um, at Chelsea Herps so um, Chelsea Connor And it says, ma'am, the last thing I need you to do is compare my struggle as a woman and as a black woman at that to a joke tweet about a model organism on a website where scientists tell each other jokingly they have the best model organism of all time. Like, Yeah, because that's the next step that I I, I try to see if other, like, because as far as I can tell, the the people that accuse this as being the same as sexism and racism uh, against people of color the people were not themselves people of color, the accusants. Um, so I try to see if people of color maybe agree. Maybe I'm not a person of color, and so maybe I'm just ignorant and I don't understand this. And yeah, I couldn't find anyone. In, and quite the contrary, um, they were the, the people of color that took a stance in here. They were quite offended, and in my opinion, rightfully so, that their struggle was compared to a joke at the expense of a worm. Um, so yeah, so this is, I think this is, this is a uh, worm gate. And I, I, at one point I was just like, how, 
why, why are scientists like that? Why, why are not all of them, hashtag not all scientists, but too many scientists clearly lack some sense of humor or uh, lightheartedness when it comes to their research um, uh, that can't even take a joke against a worm. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was really, at one point I was at a loss for words, but then I found like the fun tweets and that sort of made it worth <laughs> worthwhile. <laughs> Um, um Yoram, what's what's the the animal that you think is overrated? <laughs> yes. I um took a bat and then ran at this haunted nest of a question and I struck it with all my foes. I, I tweeted to the overhyped animals Twitter thread that started it all. I said that I think dogs are overrated and overhyped. Um and uh this led then to today not not that many it didn't lead to a full like out outcry um <laughs> but i i tweeted that um that dog smell they aggressively hump everything and you have to pick up their poo with your bare hands in public um yeah, clearly gross. exaggerating there and that got me several replies of people being like why are you using your bare hands nobody does that um, <laughs> i was wondering about that it's <laughs> very um it's a I choice. Just, <laughs> I just wanted to point out how um, disgusting I find that even if you have a plastic bag that you have to, like, at least use a shovel. You have to feel the poo, yeah. You like, have to, like, kind of... Like because any, if you use a shovel, then you've got to wash the shovel, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Get a cat. They know how to dig. Exactly. Kind of That's my whole point in that. Um, so, yeah, I got a couple of angry replies, um, but also, uh, actually... Um, quite a few people agreeing with it. So, um, yeah, I think dogs are overhyped. I don't say that they're, that they're bad, but they are. They to me, they're not living up to the hype. Um, Mine is definitely dolphins. I don't get dolphins. I think um, actually, I think like I don't. I don't generally get animals where the whole interest in them is like, oh, it's so much like a human. So dolphins and chimpanzees. It's like yeah. Mm. No, I I don't like either of them. Um, you know what's better than a dolphin? Um, I don't know. No, no I was just gonna say like a shark or anything. I don't know. That ah, wasn't, okay, yeah. I, I would say like most most things are better than a dolphin. Than, like tuna pretty fish much are pretty cool. All plants. Um, and <laughs> again, to blatantly other? steal my ex's joke, can you fix carbon? If not, we don't respect you. <laughs> exactly, and that's why we're also not dis- you know, respecting dolphins, the worm. Kind of, yeah, worm can't fix carbon. Uh, yeah. yeah um, so we linked uh, we we linked to a summary on IFL Science um, that has the whole insanity written up um, for you to gaze upon and enjoy slash cringe at. Um, I have a follow up from something that we talked about briefly. It's not a very fun fact, but just um, there's now been a publication uh, in Nature Human Behavior that came out on the 15th of July this year um, by Myers et al., which is looking at these unequal effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on scientists. So again, we've discussed this on the podcast how um, there's not going to be a fair impact and it's going to increase the inequalities that we already have in our field so this is now being published and you can go and read that in your own time i have an article uh that i read it's called racism in science is real and universities must champion change written by lala tanoi das on sciencemag.org um and i guess for people listening to us for a while now um they are as unsurprised as we are that racism in science is real but i think it's a very well written short article about uh personal experience and uh the struggles that you have as a person um that is subjected to racism uh 
the because in in this case um the the author they were um yeah in a context where there were racist remarks thrown at them and they were still early in their career and look um uh looking for labs to to finish their graduate research and so they couldn't yeah they couldn't speak up they couldn't retaliate they couldn't escalate the situation to um any any place within their institutions um so they just had to sort of swallow the the insult and the racism and that's understandably very hard and so this article yeah raises awareness about that how how that is and calls for a systemic change that we need people speaking up against this uh, in protection of people early in their careers that are often very dependent on higher ups they can't really yeah make it public that um, a person in, in in charge somewhere in an institution makes racist remarks because then this will get at a, come at the expense of the of their career and so yeah this mm. is it's a fairly short but very interesting read so i recommend it to to everyone to just have a look and um yeah um <laughs> you want you want fun i don't have fun i don't have like joyful oh i have something i have beautiful can i do beautiful yeah let's do beautiful so <laughs> It's beautiful, but it might make me a bad person. Um, <laughs> I think I saw this via the Nature Briefing. It's this story um, that's on the National Geographic, and it's about the world's most beautiful snails, which are threatened by illegal trade. So there's these um, snails in Cuba, which I think are called painted snails, um, and they just have these really, really lovely shells. So I'm going to send you the link now, Yoram, so that you can actually have a look at them, because I, I saw the... I saw the article, I saw the title and I was kind of reading the information and I was like, okay, it's, it's still a snail though. Like, So these snails are under threat because people keep on taking, like collecting them from their native habitat because they're so beautiful. And I was like, it's a snail. It's, it's a beautiful snail, but a beautiful snail is still a snail. How can you, how, how is it like it's still a snail? Who wants a snail? And then I clicked on the article and my first thought was, how can I get me some of those snails? <laughs> and then my second thought was, but maybe if I got one that were already dead, it would be fine. <laughs> Which again makes me, I mean, this is the same argument for ivory trading. It would not be fine to take the already dead snails. It's um, It would make me horrible. But they are truly beautiful snails. And it's not yeah. clear to me why these snails are so beautiful. Um, yeah, they're pretty and they know it, but... Yeah, so they live on Cuba. If you need a place where you can travel to to get some beautiful Bring snails. me back some snails! <laughs> I'm kidding, guys. Leave the snails alone. <laughs> Leave the snails alone, please. But they're definitely, they're beautiful. You should... There's don't go to Cuba. Go to the link and look at the snails because they're very, very pretty. Um, yeah, I can, I can see your dilemma. I mean, I, I dislike snails overall. Um, so there is something repelling me from actually like going and collecting and harming them, which is good for for me and for the snails. Mm. Um, but I can see how their their shells are very beautiful and they're very diverse also in color. It's not just that they have yeah. like one type of color that's beautiful. Um, but I collect them all. They, yeah, it's like it's yeah, just like a problem for the snails. Um, yeah, that's, uh, this is literally why we can't have nice things as a, as a people, <laughs> you guys. Like, and I, I really, I mean, I, I swear, I pre-read the the blurb and then I was like, all right, I'll click on the, I'll click on the link, I'll look at the snails, but like, it's a snail. And then I was just like, I want it. 
I want I want all of them. <laughs> yes. I could make a necklace. I could make earrings. I could have like, well, I don't know. <laughs> could lie on a bed of snail shells. <laughs> um, yeah, they're they're very pretty. Um, well, well done, snails. You are prettier than dolphins. I I have um, a, another short article um, that ties in with some of the things that we usually talk about on this show, which is biases. Uh, and this is just uh, a quick summary of why even smart people fall for bad science. And um, just to spoiler you for the article, it's mostly it's the biases um, mm. that everybody has and it's mostly the confirmation bias that we like to uh if we have a, a stereotype in mind and we find news that support the stereotype we're more likely to believe it and spread it um without really thinking about it because it already confirms our opinion and the other thing is negativity bias why we're drawn to um horrendous statements in the titles and um th stories about stuff going bad and um we are drawn to these things. We are more likely to share things that are outrageous. Um, mm. And so th these things combined lead to the fact that even people who are objectively smart fall for bad signs because they confirm their opinion of? and they might be, uh, might be outrageous and so more interesting and therefore also shared more. Um, and yeah, so that's again... This is why we do the bias segment. We all have yeah. them. We have to be aware of them. And we have to do better despite our biases. We can't deny that we have them. We just have to be aware that they exist. Yeah, that's while you were saying that, I was kind of thinking, did we ever really discuss why we chose to do a bias section on our I think show? The, and in the first couple of rounds where we did it. We did. Yeah. yeah, but it's exactly that. It's the idea of like, we are all biased. So it's it's... We need to first accept, you know, the first step of, of, of improving is to accept that you have a problem. We need to all accept that we all have a problem. We are all biased. And this is not about, you know, our upbringing. It's basically about our our human brains and how they work. And this gives us bias. This is, I mean, obviously yeah. there are some con cultural inputs, but to be human is to err, et cetera, et cetera, um, and to have bias, apparently. Yeah. I want to, I want... I want to play something for you. I want to. Uh, I hope you didn't read the the notes that we both can see already, uh, and I hope it's it's a surprise for you. I want you to listen to this and tell me what this is. I have I just there's so many things it could be it could be a genome it could be um, a, a geological era is it the Anthropocene um, it could be what could it be it could be the a seed germinating a plant germinating mm. um, it could be I'm trying to, I, I can't tell anything from the sound so I'm trying to guess based on um, <laughs> basically based on my knowledge of Yoram and what he would find charming i mean it, it's 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 so much simpler because um this is a podcast about plants and this was just some music so um this thing is called music for plants um <laughs> it's mother earth plantasia 
uh, Warm Earth Music for Plants and the People Who Love Them. Um, it's from a person named Garçon or Garson. Um, and it's a half an hour album that contains tracks such as a symphony for a spider plant a mellow mood for maidenair and a concerto for philodendron and potos um it's from 1976 uh and um yeah just the whole thing is on youtube you can listen to the whole uh, music uh, the whole half an hour music on youtube and i could tell that this is music for plants because it wasn't for me um this this was one of the nicer sounding bits uh overall it's like really weird like 70s synth music mm-hmm. um i found it in an article um on um inverse.com about the stunning opera house image um that is remin- reminiscent of retro plant science and when i took the opera house image is the story that you brought a couple of episodes ago about that opera house that put uh, put uh, almost 2300 plants into the auditorium to play music to them um and this article just uh covers that talks a little bit about the effects that um some people think that music has on plants how in the 60s there were studies that showed that um plants that would uh, listen and and i put air quotes here uh plants that were subjected to music they would grow 20% taller and 72% larger um these were studies in the 60s and then they go on that in the 70s there were other things that they uh in another study that they found that uh led zeppelin or Jimi hendrix that their music would wilt uh, lead to plants wilting in response um and and so on and yeah in this at the end of this article there is this plant music and uh i have bought in the past uh an album made uh with music for cats uh and uh, now i have also music for plants so maybe soon i have a collection for things that living things that don't care for music that humans have made music for i don't know if i've got much to bring i've got like there was a it mentioned in these in scientific american that this far world vault has got one million seeds now so we've discussed this in previous episodes i think um that there's a seed vault way up in the coldest part of the world, which is basically just to keep seeds safe um, so that if we ever have like local extinctions, then they can um, be taken and, and sort of from the, from the vault and, and replanted. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they just got some extra samples. So now it's, it's reached a million. And I would kind of like to go up there and visit that one day. But yeah. You would... I don't think you can, though, right? I think you can see the outside of the structure. That's yeah. basically you can't go inside unless because, you're very like, special. It's, it's a very important vault, so you can't just have like interested plant nerds going in there and but like, you can, touch you all can the pose, seeds. And, like, you can pose on the. I mean, it's kind of underground as well, from what yeah. I've seen in the photos. It's just like a kind of futuristic or like seventies style thing going into the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I would just pose in front of that and call it a day. <laughs> uh, do you have a cat fact? I have, yeah, I have a cat fact. Cat I don't know, fact. did we already, oh, sorry, cat fact. <laughs> did we already <laughs> mention last week um, John Nicholson? I'm not sure. I think it came out like just before the podcast. There was this um, British, uh, 
I don't know if he's in a member of parliament or just an important person. He has a member of parliament who was doing kind of a Zoomy Skype call about the importance of having subtitles on children's TV, which is actually kind of a, a mm-hmm. cool and important topic. And his cat was just walking in front of the camera. So just like general cat <laughs> act antics where, I mean, it's it's a cat with a very fluffy, stripy tail and the cat wasn't really there. Just like this tail keeps on going in front of him. <laughs> and at one stage, she's just like... Rojo, please put your tail down and like tries to um, <laughs> smack it down. And then like the the other um, attendants are obviously <laughs> laughing a bit about that. So I thought I don't know if we mentioned it before, but that's quite <laughs> yeah. I think we did general cute. Yeah, we did. No, we didn't. We did not yet. And then the other thing when I looked again, I just googled for for cat news. There was a cat owner whose cat has been bringing them swimming goggles instead of (laughs) like this cat was really into like murdering mice and birds and you know gifting them to the owner because cats are hunters and that's what they do they murder mice and frogs so if you're in australia maybe keep your cats indoors um and they like to present europe like they also kill many many birds in europe so yeah but i care less because it's at least like european cats killing common european birds like nobody's crying for a pigeon whereas like I mean, it's still sad. Death is death, but at the same time... But there's also some endangered birds in Europe that are endangered because of house cats. Okay. It's not great, but it's not the same as, like... It's not the same as in Australia. You're disgusting European animals wiping out, like, 10% of our tiny marsupials in, what, 250 years since Europeans came to Australia. But I digress. Um, this kind kitty has decided that instead of murdering um mices it's gonna instead murder goggles so uh three to four weeks ago avery the cat returned home with a pair of goggles (laughs) and the owner was just like all right there's like kids nearby it's it's hot people are like going in the swimming pool it's fine and then three days later the cat came with two more pairs of goggles um and now that's kind of the cat's thing that it's just bringing goggles and she doesn't know where they come from. She's tried asking people if the goggles belong to them, but yeah, um, well done, kitty. And the cat looks quite proud of itself, so that's also a plus, I would say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish my cats would bring like some stu- fun stuff from the neighborhood. We just have foxes who go around and they take shoes from um, like patios, uh, patios, patios is the word. Um, yeah. We have fox going around taking shoes from patios and then burying them like in the vicinity. So often you find only one shoe left on your patio and then you like go in your garden and then suddenly you see a like um, chewed on shoe sitting somewhere like half buried under a bush. And that's yeah, the foxes here. They find great joy in playing with the shoes of the of the neighbors. Yeah, my housemate had like leather gardening gloves and they just got completely destroyed. The foxes kind of ate through them i guess i don't know mm. i think we're good for this uh, episode i think we said all of the things that we wanted to say that we had to say that oh my goodness had to <laughs> so erupt out of us during this episode <laughs> Uh, if you want to know more about plant science, uh, you can check out our websites, uh, our website, plantsandpipettes.com, uh, where we publish about twice a week uh, articles about fun stories from the world of molecular plant research. If you want to talk to us, you can contact us usually by social media. So on Facebook and Instagram, you're usually talking to me and that's at Plants and Pipettes. 
Um, also, if you want to tell me what plant I should dress up um, as next, I'm doing dress like a plant. Yeah, because very successfully. It's lockdown, and I have very few other things to do with my life. Um, that looks very pretty. Please. Always like you have. Like, I don't even have to kind of wardrobe. Like I have. Like if you, if I find um, a black plant that has um, a band print on it, then I have. <laughs> A fitting fitting outfit but apart from that it's really hard for me to dress like a plant yeah actually i i recently told you to that you're gonna need an orange a red a blue and a white costume for something i wanted to do when you're like i have none of those things but i have this gray t-shirt does that work for you <laughs> I was like that's you know i wanted to react like to act out destiny's child say my name which has a very particular and defined color palette and apparently Yarim <laughs> is not a good friend. I can do the one that's in black and white. I can do that video. <laughs> um, because it's I have black not, and white clothes. It's just not the same, I would say. Um, on Twitter, you can find me and my terrible takes on which animals uh, are overhyped. Um, uh, that's at Plants for Pets. You can write us on iTunes or wherever you can write podcasts. And our opening and closing music was Caravana. Caravana by Philip Gross. Philip Gross. And that's it. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs>